0: Hello, I'm Hesha Montasar, and thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Conversations. We're in a summer break right now, and we'll be back with brand new episodes in September. In the meantime, I'd like to take you back to one of our live episodes with UAE Minister of State, His Excellency Zaki Noseba. He's a polyglot, a voracious reader, and an art collector, far before collecting was very fashionable. Have a listen, and see you in a couple of weeks. Zaki, last time we met, actually a few years ago, was here in the lighthouse, we had lunch. And you talked to me about your family a little bit, leaving Jerusalem in the 1960s, and you and your siblings siblings dispersing and going to different places. And your family was one of the oldest recognized families in Jerusalem, right? So one correct? of
1: the families that went with Omar ibn al-Khattab when he went to Jerusalem, settled there, and lived there since then. And we still, of course, have large numbers of family living there. I was at a school called St. George's, which is an an Anglican church school and it had its choir at school. and it was uh, in an environment where you didn't know what religion was we knew we were muslims we had friends who were christian who were jewish who were different uh, different sects of islam and christianity but having a friend sit next to you at school called salim or ali or basim you really didn't know whether he was christian or muslim and it never came into our mind so this was the kind of spirit spirit of the place but again because of the churches that it has, because of the mosques, of course, the Dome of the Rock, uh, the Masjid Al-Aqsa, the Aqsa Mosque. Uh, there was a lot of music in those days, the music of that you heard in the churches, again in the choirs, but also a number of active cultural centers for the foreign uh, embassies or consulates that were in Jerusalem that brought concerts, concerts to Jerusalem. I remember, as an example, the British Council in those days, and unfortunately it stopped doing it, used to have libraries. And you used to go and and, and be able to get books to read because books were not easy to sure. have access to in those days. And, uh, and I remember one of the first things uh, I saw there as a film, Black and White, was Great Expectations, and it blew my mind as a young boy so the family we grew up there i went to school in england uh, and then 67 The break the war of 67 i couldn't go back to jerusalem so i came to abu dhabi but that's a you know
0: a whole story and, and all itself. your siblings most of you went different, to different places. places so
1: my younger brothers were still studying uh, they went on studying for a while in fact, in, in, in all of my brothers got scholarships from Sheikh Zayed with whom I was working. So my family in a way was taken over by Sheikh Zayed uh, here in Abu Dhabi, uh, and, uh, and then they did different things. So I had a brother who came, two of them came to work here, uh, one in oil, uh, one in government relations, who then went back to do his the PhD uh, in Islamic philosophy and then uh, went back to Jerusalem, established the Arab University of Jerusalem, and still lives there. Another brother uh, came here again to work with an oil company, uh, then went with Total, uh, and he actually became a French citizen and uh, a general manager or president of Total. And uh, And then he settled in Paris, and he lives now between Paris and Abu Dhabi and he's retired. But a third brother actually studied Islamic philosophy for his PhD, and then became a banker. And when he became a banker like you, an investment banker. Ex-banker now. <laughs> I told him many years ago, why did you choose uh, banking? He said, because I knew that you are in London, you're going to ask me, you know, what job are you, do you want me to look for you for? And I, I, I had looked in the Times supplement the, that morning, and I saw that a teacher at Oxford University and seven thousand pounds a year, but a banker and twelve thousand. <laughs> He's right. So he went into banking. then he settled into London, actually, in London, uh, married and lives in London. So as a family, yes, we are spread out, I have also two sisters lived both of them in Jordan, one of them an artist who went to New York, lived in New York, came back, another sister who settled now in Jordan. So it's a spread out family
0: so when we were making choices about your own career obviously did this family history in any way impact that your choices because you had obviously many choices you came to abu dhabi um abu dhabi was wide open at the time and you had a number of options but you pursued the options you did explain to us a little bit did the family history part impact you or were there were you very clear from the beginning about the choice you wanted to make
1: no i think it's family history you know to a large extent because we have always been we have not, we have always been either government or academic or judges or uh, uh, lawyers or government civil servants um, uh, my father was the ambassador in london he was minister uh, so, I mean, to that extent, that, that, for me, it was somewhere there, my interest. But in fact, from, very young, from that very day, I went to the British Council and, and uh, saw uh, great expectations in black and white. And then I read I, the novels of George Zidane, I remember, as a young boy. You know, George Zidane uh, is an Arab author who's written a series of history books. He's almost like a Sir Walter Scott. Uh, and it's all based on Islamist Arabic history, recounting Harun al Rashid, the Assassins, but always in an in an amazing uh, with an amazing facility, and I loved it. I mean, I loved reading. And then, of course, the poetry we at school, at St. George's, we used to have a teacher who was the best teacher we ever did have, who taught us Arabic modern, romantic poetry. And, So, I mean, that was always reading books. And the poetry came back in your life later on because you translated,
0: you know, some poetry. Yes.
1: I mean, poetry has, has been from the outset one of my great passions. And I think with our Arab heritage, for us, poetry is something that is embedded in our DNA. I mean, we enjoy poetry. I know that Sheikh Zayed, for instance, who never did have any formal education, in fact, I learned classical Arab heritage through the poetry of the great Jahiliya poet Al Mutanabbi. He used to quote Al Mutanabbi extensively and ask us about the meaning of words. I mean, he tested us to see who knew uh, which word. So that was when I, mean, I when I came out. I came out because of the Six Day War. Because my parents had gone back. Uh, to Jerusalem uh, and I, because of the war, I could not go back. And we had a a relationship with the Emirates. My father knew both Sheikh Shakhboot and Sheikh Zayed. He'd received, in fact, when I was still at Cambridge in England, Sheikh Zayed was in London in the summer before he became ruler. And he came to dinner in the embassy residence in London and I met him, but I I had no idea. So your father? Through the father, but I had no idea that,
0: you would be that there. my
1: life, my destiny is going to be in Abu Dhabi. But in '67, after it was June that I came down, uh, as they say, the war had broken up. So my father said, Why not go to Abu Dhabi? We had a company here that was just about opening uh, because Sheikh Zayed had just become a ruler. He was developing some major uh, contracts in Abu Dhabi. And they said, Go out uh, and try your luck. I came, but did not really feel attracted to, that to job. working in contracting or accounting or selling iron rods. And so I drifted into journalism. I was going to say, so you started with journalism. I drifted into journalism. You know, in those days, there was one hotel uh, called the Beach Hotel. It was the only place in town which was a watering. Uh, the Sheraton now? or what? It's the Sheraton yeah. Place Hotel now. Yeah. And it was uh, the only place that had air conditioning. I mean, we used to live in prefabricated kind of units, sometimes had electricities, often not, even in summer. But the hotel was the only place that had both electricity, air conditioning, and company. And in those days, a lot of editors, foreign editors, Arab editors, were passing through Abu Dhabi because they were interested in two things. One was to see what are the new economic you know, uh, big projects that Sheikh Zayed is going to announce. And so that was big news internationally. But also because they were worried uh, once Britain announced that it will withdraw from the Gulf. There will be a vacuum. That there will be a power vacuum and therefore a security issue. And they wanted to cover what was happening, but it was not important enough to have uh, reporters actually resident in Abu Dhabi. So it was natural to ask me to become a stringer, which means you write a story. If they publish it, they pay you per piece. And I remember, for instance, the first piece I did was about Abu Dhabi's five-year plan, 68 to 72. I sent it to the Financial Times. I got 10 pounds, which was a lot of money in those days, but also... You could rewrite that story into four or five different forms, uh-huh. and then send it to Agence France Presse and to Reuters and to the Economist. So it's not
0: just your brother, the banker, that knew how to make money. A little,
1: <laughs> a little to survive. I mean, in those right. days, it was survival.
0: Uh... And did you feel that the way you were covering the stories as an Arab and someone that grew up in the region was different than some of those foreign correspondents or not correspondents at the time, but that came and told a similar story, for example, because, about the five-year plan?
1: Yes, because I mean, I I got very rapidly to know everybody because in those days Abu Dhabi was a small village really by the sea and the decision makers were few in numbers and it was enough to say I am Financial Times and all doors would open to you and then I met everyone within a month or two and of course living there knowing the history before going out and from the time that I met Sheikh Zayed in London I mean, I was obviously fascinated by the man and his history, and I had started even then to read a lot of the books about the region, uh, Arabian Sand, Wilfred Thesiger, The Golden Bubble. I mean, there were a number of books that I read. And so when I came out, I was well uh, introduced both to the region, its history, the tribal history, the stories of Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the Emirates, and I found it all fascinating.
0: Were there Was there documentation and writing that was coming from the region? I mean, I'm just contrasting growing up in Egypt and remembering, I started reading some parts of the especially more modern history of Egypt. Only when I left, I went to the States, because in Egypt, you had a very particular and subjective kind of coverage, I'm not saying outside it wasn't subjective, but it didn't exist. Did you experience something similar at the time? There was very
1: little that was written from this region. So one of as, I mean, me, almost immediately I became Sheikh Zayed's interpreter in 1968 uh, and then uh, media director. And one of the first things we had to do is to go and find the history so that we can publish it as right. a department of information. And of course, then you had to go to the Lorimer Gazetteers, you had to go to the British documents to start finding the, the, archives. the archives about the tribal history and then to revise them. You see, there was a lot of oral history then, so we had to go and research the actual archival uh, docu- uh, history, then come to Sheikh Zayed, and and this is the Department of Information, and actually work out what was uh, factual and what was not. And so a lot of the work we did in those years, early days, I remember, was documenting the history. And publishing them as publications of the Department of Information. And in those days, we had to go to Beirut to do everything. You know, if you needed publishing.
0: To, to publish, because there were no printing presses here. There was no press
1: here. I mean, I remember when we started our first Arabic newspaper, Al Ittihad. we would assemble photographs, articles, then send them to Beirut so that they're printed there, then wait for the uh, uh, Middle East airline to bring them back. And so the newspaper came initially in two uh, edi- two editions a week. It was a bi weekly. And the first English newspaper I started, called Abu Dhabi News, was here. once a week here. And what then year it became MRS News. It was 69 also. And it was a general newspaper covering various- yes, but I mean, few pages and covering. So, it was really still then elementary kind of journalism. And then of course, that developed over the years.
0: Let me transition for a minute here, talk just about uh, your interest in art. So that's a, you have a you know, multi-decade relationship with art that's in some cases well told before, but I'm interested in your particular relationship with art because it's not only just collecting art. I mean, obviously that's one aspect that you enjoy. Uh, and we just talked now, uh, we were talking about, for example, some of your um, pieces from your collection that were exhibited in NYU Abu Dhabi as part of one of the professor's curated exhibition for her students. So your relationship with art goes beyond collecting into what is it? Is it the learning? Is it the the interacting with it? What, what, what draws your interest? You here? know,
1: I, I love the German language and the Germans have a a real knack to put words together. They build a word out of three different words to give the full meaning of what they want to say. And I love one of the words that is a compound word is what Richard Wagner, uh, as an opera composer, described his operas. And he called it a, a Gesamtkunstwerk, which really means
0: a whole art work i want to say sorry i went to german school so i can verify it's correct <laughs> <laughs> so a construct what he
1: wanted to to say by that is that he's not just composing an opera he's not just composing music he's not just com. he's actually writing poetry he's a philosopher i mean this is how he showed the, the, his work and for me if i am to Invent uh, uh, and became Gesamtkunstwerk became accepted in English language as a kind of term term in, in the aesthetics of a whole work that brings in different aspects, uh, not only just one aspect. And to me, if I want to describe my relationship with art, I would call it a Gesamtkunsterfahrung, which experience. means experience. It's really the the experience is not just one side of it one aspect of it so clearly it's if the everything that goes with the with art so it's the enjoyment of looking at it it's the enjoyment of uh, meeting people who are creative and create this art uh, in front of you it's the enjoyment of learning about it it's the enjoyment of, sharing of discussing it and it's the enjoyment of sharing it because in the end no art should exist you know in 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 a kind of monastery although it's a right monastery if you can go and visit but it should really be shared by all this is why i personally love museums i love museums when they don't charge people because i think access should be free but i also think that even private collections should be open collections i mean art is something for everybody to enjoy, to appreciate and to learn from. So art is not just a question of having uh, something on your wall, but it's all the feeling that goes with it. a
0: When we come back, Zaki tells us about the various stages of being an art collector and what it means to him. We will also take some questions from the audience. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations on our live episode with Minister of State Zaki Noseba. Before the break, Zaki was telling us about the impact art had on him, the overall experience, which is in German named Gesamtkunsterfahrung, and why he feels all art should be public.
1: I mean, I again think that art speaks to you. And the you cannot just enjoy everything and you do not react in the same way to everything that you see and of course, I went through several phases. Uh, first, when you enjoy art, you enjoy everything. Sure. I mean, I remember as a schoolboy, I was still at rugby school in England, and I went to Paris maybe 16, maybe 15, and my sister was studying at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts uh, as a painter herself. And I remember in those days, the Impressionist art was in a the museum called Jeux de Pomme, which was in the Jardin des Tuileries. Now it has the Monet uh, water lilies series, but then it was Impressionist and it was Rodin, the, the 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 Thinker and the Kiss, and I again I remember when I saw those in Paris, it just blew my mind, and from then you know you go to enjoy all ki- all, all kinds of arts. I mean, in London was beautiful. Cambridge had, of course. Uh, the Fitzwilliam Museum, which had uh, everything uh, from Rembrandt to Rubens.
0: And when you transition to look at Arab art… But this is what I want to say. So
1: this is the first phase is when you go and look and enjoy art and you try to learn about art generally. And then when you start wanting to have your own collection, I mean, I initially went for Orientalists. And in those days, I'm talking about the 60s, it was not expensive uh, and i collected some because i wanted to have around me some art that uh, you know is uh, related to my region and an art that speaks to me and then i was, was taken up by modern uh, middle east art so i sold when it became because it, it becomes actually when when art becomes so expensive it's almost obscene i mean i don't think that art I think art should always remain available accessible to people. So anyway, I sold what I had, and I started buying modern and contemporary uh, Middle East or Manasseh, if you like art. And of course, since coming here, uh, this has been really my focus, is to get art from Manasseh, from the region, from starting with the Gulf, with the Emirates, with the region, with the Middle East, but with India, Southeast Asia, To look at art that talks to us, and the UAE, as you know, has 200 nationalities that live and work and uh, create uh, creatively, uh, lived together here, and so you you have you have all of this to talk to you, and this is really my focus now. It's it's, have you found
0: anything particular that speaks to you within? I mean, it's now a, a a larger body of work in terms of both modern and contemporary art in the middle east. I mean for example I find myself drawn to particular eras in some cases the pre-67 era in Egypt for example maybe it's nostalgic I'm not sure maybe it's freezing certain memories but have you found in your sort of interest a particular era or line speaking to you uh you know for me
1: I look at the whole sweep of this this art development from modern, well there's Egypt, of course, we have some great artists, uh, Iraq, of course, that has some great artists, Syria. And we notice that a great deal of this art is started being based on calligraphy, or rufiyat, using the uh, the letters of the alphabet initially as sentences and subsequently as abstract and conceptual. But it's and it's all in one way or another a reflection on our social mores, on our history. So a lot of it is political, and I I cannot say that I like one phase more than the other. I you know I whether you get a Gergesian in order to look at the ideas of the Trinity and motherhood and and sadness or uh, you know those hauntingly lonely individuals whether it's a little girl or a player uh, or an instrument player or has him harmed when he goes and looks at uh, those old um, you know posters uh, of uh, palestinian uh, innocence and then puts superimposes things on them so i cannot say one phase and not the other but a lot of it i would say iranian art I mean, you know, if you have Farhad Mushiri, these classical jars that are both part of our heritage because it's classical. It has poetry. Normally he writes poetry on it. And then you read something like one, the one particular one I love is where it's where a woman who says, or it's a woman who puts her, shoulder, her head on his shoulder, weeping, saying, I love you no more. And you want to know, you know, if she doesn't love him no more, why is she weeping and why is her head on? That kind, you know, it talks to you. Sure. Uh, Muhammad Qasim, some of his latest series about the conditions of labor in the Emirates. I mean, these dark shadows that you do not see because they're out of the light. Hassan Sharif and his, you know, uh, almost. Crazy ideas Very that he had been able to develop from the 80s, and uh, now recognize
0: been some recognized of the, it more lately. Yes. Uh, so all of this, all of this is is interesting for me in equal terms. And how do you connect these dots in terms of your own interests? Because I know you read a lot. You've also taught yourself many languages, right? How many languages, just for the record? Seven, seven, seven. I can only test you on four, but anyway, I'm <laughs> going to. Um, so how do you connect these dots? Because I think it's also a very important consideration when we think about you know, uh, students and children today growing up, and how do we build all of the ecosystem together? Because it's not one or the other. It's not you alone know what to just makes have arts. You have to have all these pieces. So fact, how do you connect those it's dots? it's
1: our propensity to tell stories and to enjoy storytelling. So. You know, from the from, from being a baby, how the, how does a baby learn? A baby learns by listening to stories and sounds. So everything connects. Uh, the language is sound. This is what makes us uh, human beings. It gives us language, and then it gives us the ability to be uh, storytellers, weavers of dreams, and then those dreams become our own. So if... You start reading, and I mean, as children, when we start reading those stories, whether it's Alice in Wonderland or, uh, you know, you start having images in your own mind about uh, the the events that take place, uh, uh, about uh, Red Riding Hood and that bad wolf that's... And then from those images, your your mind grows, you know, you develop, this is this is a gift that we are endowed with. It's genetically embedded in us, where storytelling is the way that our lives uh, grow, and 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 we we're able to to branch out, to learn, to absorb from music to art to storytelling to poetry, to architecture, enjoying to enjoying nature to enjoying the sound of water uh, spring or the sound of birds. Uh, and all of this is storytelling. I mean, we really are humans in that we are storytellers and that we really learn by listening to stories or recounting those stories. Now, an artist would tell you a story. Uh, Chopin uh, will tell you a story through his music. Uh, Faust would tell you, a uh, Goethe would tell you a story through his, uh, his theater and so forth. This is the connecting, I, I believe, personally. And this is how I brought up my children always, to induce in them, very young, as children, the love. And I'm sure all parents do this with their children. They induce in their children storytelling. I mean, you interest your child in in, in, in life by, by, by telling him a story or her mm-hmm. story. And then you induce them to read because you want them to enjoy this storytelling and to weave their own dreams. Or to enjoy the weaving of dreams by others. I mean, you saw the findings that were made uh, recently about rock art in Australia. 44,000 years ago, this is when man was pre Neolithic, I don't know what they are, or Paleolithic, or whatever term there is, but this is 44,000 years ago when uh, pre- that man was still a hunter gatherer, so agriculture has not developed, and yet. They spent all their time scavenging for food. And yet they were able to draw these designs on walls and 44,000 years ago of animals that had human heads. And obviously, again, it's a way of telling a story. So there is a need. There is an embedded need in our genetic. Uh, And obviously
0: some of the art you spoke about earlier are also artists wanting to tell their own story. I mean, Hazen is a case in point, but you know, wanting to tell their story or at least appropriate the narrative for themselves and tell a version of that story. And
1: I think every form of art is storytelling, you know, whether it's music, whether it's a novel, whether in, in a novel, in a poem, every, every work of art, every creative work of art is in fact a telling of a story.
0: So what can um, parents and, and teachers and others do to to promote that type of storytelling? Because when you look at today's curriculum, I'm not talking about you necessarily, cross, sometimes you find those things lacking and these things are also taught in isolation as opposed to being connected. What do you think can be done about that?
1: The first thing is take away all these iPads and- uh, and uh, It's a tall order. It's, <laughs> it's tall going to order. be difficult. I mean, iPads become very useful at some stage, but and these games, these electronic games, because I think the first, the first, duty of any parent really is i believe through storytelling to in, to really inspire the child's imagination because it's the imagination that makes a child grow so you need to really inspire you need to fire that imagination and you can only do this through uh, inducing into your you know the young 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 children this love for storytelling story reading and not show them films of i mean i'll i'll tell you uh, for instance uh, lord of the rings when you read a story to children is it, uh, you give them one kind of ability to imagine what is happening but you show them the cartoon and suddenly there is no imagination because everything They're is put on before them so it's really how do you inspire enrich a child's imagination i mean my children i used to take to school and recount stories to them like a thousand and one nights ending every time at a cliffhanger so that they will be waiting for me to for the next and night. take them back That's to brilliant. continue with that story and there are so many stories to tell children and then as they grow i believe the importance of letting them you know visit museums and listen to music and and this is one of the great things that the leadership here has accomplished is to begin opening all these museums around us. Because a child that goes to a school and learns in a curriculum about culture or art is not a full student. He must go to a museum. He must see things uh, and he must really enjoy them. Uh, and teachers, well, I'm, you know this is uh, bring culture, art, teach children how to really, again, enrich the imagination. Always the question of enriching a person's imagination.
0: And to that point about culture uh, production here in the UAE, as you said, the first chapter was obviously building the infrastructure. Many museums have opened, art galleries. That was top-down for the most part. And now you're seeing also over the last 10 years, let's say, a bottom-up movement as well. Several movements, Al Cercel, Dinam is with us here, and others have really spearheaded this movement that's more organic. And there's an interplay between the top-down, government-led, and the organic. How does that play out going forward? Okay, I think to
1: begin with, I mean, let's just to put some something out of uh, into context that there was always also organic social uh, involvement in art. Sure. I mean, so when we talk about uh the for instance the Hassan-Jarif group uh, that in the 80s it created a society it's sand castles that met together with poets and they, they included poets and painters so there was always a social uh organic if you like movement uh but of course in a place like the UAE which really started on a marvelous journey 50 years ago. I, you know, I always uh, tell people who come to visit here, you need to look at a record of what existed 50 years ago to see and to appreciate what was accomplished uh, in such a short span of time. And it's not a question of oil money because oil is abundant in Libya and oil is in Iraq and oil is in Nigeria. So it's a, a number of things that work. No, there together. has to be a will
0: and an interest,
1: and, and 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 good governance, and 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 passionate leadership, and and responsible, you know, leaders with a sense of responsibility, and so forth. But the basic, I would say, first forty years were focused on 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 building the infrastructures that were badly needed, including roads. I mean, the airport in Dubai, the first one I came to. Was a small building where you could see it, you know, you walk from one end to the other, and you look at Dubai's airport today. But at the same time, the next, if you like, phase of development is one where the focus is really on education, creating a society of knowledge and culture as an integral part of education. And this is where you need governments from up downwards to invest. And this has happened, you know, throughout history. So the great collections of the world, whether it's in Florence or in Venice or in Paris, they were all started by either royal families or uh, leaders or emperors. Or, and this is something that the leader, the government in the UAE is doing now. I mean, in charge Sharjah, they've been doing it since the 90s of the last century with the biennale that has taken off as an amazing landmark uh, international on the global art scene. The museums, 24 museums. And then the big museums that in Abu Dhabi were uh, envisaged within the cultural uh, center on Sa'diyat. I mean, a really major, major uh, investment. And that has brought in true international global awareness of the region in terms of art and culture. So whereas I would say, in the law, the first art in the West was always considered from a Western-centric perspective. That is something that develops in Paris and London and Los Angeles, but nothing possible in Cairo or New Delhi or. Now that perspective has changed. All these directors of museums who come here have seen that there is an exciting, a robust, uh, uh, an imaginative art, both modern and contemporary, here and in the region because the emirates straddles a wide strategic uh, and and therefore there is interest from uh global but then this is not enough as you said because in the end the only way it becomes alive is when from bottom from society society itself the social entrepreneurs also the come in, and this is something that Al Serkal has done in a major way, and you know, really kudos to him. And because he created a cultural hub that is independent of government control in the heart of the city, and it has become internationally recognized. He had a Bauhaus building that nearly won the Aga Khan Prize. Prize yeah. galleries that have opened now. Here, what is happening in Dubai is particularly exciting because I think traditionally. Dubai was always had a stronger entrepreneurial community. Abu Dhabi was more government and is more government fixated. But it's a good, sure, it's, a, like, it's a good balance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Abu Dhabi can invest in those big museums that we are having: the Louvre, the Guggenheim, the Zayed National Museum. Later, perhaps the maritime, and you know, to have a museum of universal uh, stature like the Louvre is not a small no. achievement. And this drives also the cultural scene, but it also drives social community to become more involved because governments are, bureaucrats are never good cultural stars. You need uh, the local community to become the real actors. And we have that. I mean, we're beginning to have this, but I still believe that it is important for governments to invest. I mean, even today, people don't realize that 80% of new museums in the world were built past 1980. So big cities in the world go on recognizing that we need to spend on culture. Unfortunately, when you have now government budgets and accountants who want to save money, sometimes they forget that investing in culture is long-term, but it is a major driver for sustainable development.
0: It was truly inspiring getting Minister Zaki's perspective on how the region continues to build its own narrative and use its rich history as a launching pad. We also received some interesting questions from the audience. For example, one member of the audience wanted to know how Sheikh Zayed acted as a patron for arts and culture, even beyond the borders of the UAE. In
1: 1969, as an example, but after that, uh, he, he, Sheikh Zayed used to go to Geneva We used to go to Geneva he would spend in the summer and he would spend the uh, time there and the first the first time i mean and he loved seeing it because it was beautiful of course nature which he loved the water the green and the first thing he said there is to bring a team of performers uh, to the university of Geneva uh, there was a professor he knew of the, the region Simon Jarji. Simon Jarji. and so I got to know him. And then we brought over a whole team of ayale dancing and music players, and they performed on the stage at the University of Geneva. And I remember bringing them with me. They were very young performers. And as we drove from airport in a bus into Geneva, uh, one of them told me, you know, I read a lot of description of heaven in the Quran, and now that I see this around me, I can see what heaven is like. And interestingly, Sheikh Zayed then created the same kind of lake with a water spring that comes from the middle in Al Ain, near Al Mubazzara. But so for Sheikh Zayed, he was always interested in showing what we had as a cultural heritage. Everywhere he went. In 1969 again, and before we had infrastructure in Al Ain, he asked us to build the first museum, archaeological museum, uh, which stands there today, although it's being renovated now, in order to show the archeological finds from Healy and Umm-Nar about the communities who lived here four and 5,000 years ago, traded with the Indus Valley, with Mesopotamia, created beautiful pottery. He wanted to tell a story, and the story is about the people of the UAE. You know, do not come here just looking, thinking this is an oil, uh, patch It has discovered oil and therefore there is no history or there is no heritage or there is no tradition. So Sheikh Zayed was very keen on making sure that our heritage and our traditions live with us and then that we also uh, expose them to the
0: world that is coming to either live
1: with us or work
0: here. Another one asked him what kind of stories Minister Zaki himself is drawn to and what role storytelling plays in forming an identity.
1: You know, very, very good questions, of course. What is storytelling to me? Uh, What kind of storytelling? My whole life is built, if you like, around storytelling. So, I look at everything in terms of a story that is either being recounted to me or of something that I am trying to read. Whether that is in going to a Wagner opera, to the Ring, or going to uh, to a theater, going to the Globe and listening to Shakespeare, reading a novel, reading a poem, everything for me tells me a story, and I, 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 you know, it goes through my mind the whole time. When I try to sleep at night, I, I, I go through a storytelling phase in order to go to sleep. So everything, everything to me, I go through is is, is a question of storytelling. Uh, even films I see, I try to make into a story, then live through them. Uh, And I believe that this is really, really the secret of our, if you like, being enthralled by anything we go to, whether it's a film or or a theater or an opera or reading a novel or even reading science fiction that I really am also passionate about. But we don't realize that it's storytelling, but th- this is the way that we, our imagination is nourished. Now, what about identities? Identities, of course, are important. And uh, through reading, through he- we talked about heritage, and we talked about the need to keep your uh, social roots, your heritage, your traditions, But there is always a thin line and the dangerous one between identity as part of an enriching, uh, you know, overall component of your personality or as a debilitating one because it pushes you into a bubble that then seeks to isolate itself from the other or starts to look askance as the other or disrespect for the other. So, how can we manage to? Have an identity that is important, a Palestinian. I mean, they ask me, "What do you feel yourself as an identity?" And I say, "I'm an Emirati who is born in Jerusalem. You know, I spent all my life and all my work in the Emirates, and I am born in Jerusalem and have family traditions that go back there uh, 1,500 years. And that is easy when you look at it as something that is complementing each other. It becomes dangerous when you fox yourself into saying. I am a Shiite, uh, or I am a, a Durzi, or I am a, a, an, a, simply uh, in the sex, different sex, a Maronite, an Orthodox, a Catholic, and I think this is the dangerous line that we need to we seek. Identity seeking is important, but at the same time, we need always to learn how to be open to the others and. Interestingly enough, you can only do this when you
0: are confident of your own identity. I going to interject and the story you told us at the beginning is so telling. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, essentially a Muslim family was holding custody to the keys of a holy church in Jerusalem. So that's sort of Again, another story and very so it's telling an identity
1: about… identity of… You have the two. You know, the identities yeah. can become… Amin Marouf called them the deadly identities in one of his books because this is what led Lebanon into the civil war and is leading Lebanon, you know, into the nightmare that it has been… This is Lebanon as a country, really, uh, for all those who knew it. And I knew it in the 60s when it was… A, we called it the Paris, the Switzerland of the Middle East. We went there to buy books in the, in the bookshops and to meet the, you know, the writers and the poets and political parties of all hues. And yet, as they started bringing themselves more and more narrowly into their own identities, uh, it, it, it was a path to
0: disaster. So we have to keep this balance between the two. And lastly, a young member of the audience Wanted to know what advice Zaki had for aspiring journalists. As a journalist, I think
1: the first thing is to be passionate about your work because you are telling a story. And, you know, human nature is all about telling a story. And journalists are people who go out in order to report on things happening, whether it's in politics or in economics or in history, and they tell a story. And then, of course, to be literate. I mean, you need to develop your uh, linguistic abilities to the extent where you can express yourself uh, in the best forms that are available to you. And then you have to become knowledgeable uh, about uh, anything you want to work with. And that means really reading up regularly. I used to tell my daughters when they were at school, read The Economist every week. Read Newsweek and Times, and you are you will you will keep abreast of what's happening around the world. So you have to read and to be knowledgeable about uh, everything you do, and then you have to network because journalism depends on networking. You have to have your sources, you have to have your access, you have to have the trust and confidence of people who are uh, in charge. Develop all of those together, and you will become a great journalist. Technology should not be used as a shortcut. Read seriously. Lit- I mean, take a newspaper, and, uh, The Independent, The Guardian, The Times, any, any of those papers, The New York Times, and a great paper. Uh, take a magazine, Newsweek and Times, and The Economist. Take uh, a Times Literary Supplement, learn about new books. You really need to read. In order to be a journalist, you read really to read and read and read. A, that improves your own language. B, it teaches you how to express yourself, because there is a style for journalism, how to produce a paragraph, where to start it with, how to end your paragraph.
0: And then knowledge, knowledge and networking. I think on that note, uh, we'll have to end it. Thank you so much, uh, your Excellency, for coming today and for joining us. Hmm. Many more stories to tell. So inshallah, there'll be a sequel well, soon. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks everyone for coming. As always, thank you for joining us on the episode of The Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Muntasir, as your host. The Lighthouse Conversations is produced by Chirag Desai. You can listen to all our episodes for free in your favorite podcast player and on the web at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast.